My name's Luther, Martin Luther. And you may not know this, but 2017 is a very special and significant year. Because on the 31st of October, this year, we will celebrate the 500th year of what many consider to be the start of the Reformation. I played quite a key role in it, as it turns out. As a young 34-year-old professor, I nailed a piece of paper to the castle church doors in Wittenberg. It wasn't even a great literary piece. It was simply a short thesis taking a biblical stand against the despicable sale of indulgences. Can I tell you a little secret? When I nailed that piece of paper to that door, I had absolutely no idea that would have the historical significance that has resonated through the ages from that moment to today. Let me give you a bit of context. I lived in Europe. And Europe, to be quite honest with you, was a little bit of a basket case. Man, life expectancy back then was a healthy 35 years of age. Most of you guys wouldn't be there. Child mortality rates, 30 to 50%. Can you imagine that your chance of surviving childbirth was based on the flip of a coin? Poverty was rampant. Only people that could study and could learn were those that knew and understood and had studied Latin. And can I'll be honest with you, the main reason that Europe was a basket case was because the church was a basket case. This was best represented in Geneva a number of years later, when in the old city to celebrate the Reformation, they built the Reformation wall. And on that wall, they carved uh, statues of some of my contemporaries, Calvin and Knox. But most significantly, carved on this wall were the words, Post Tenebris Lux. Now, I know you guys are all pretty smart, but maybe your Latin's a little bit rusty. So let me help you out. Post tenebris lux, after darkness, light. What was this darkness? Well, now we look back and we consider that whole period of time as something called the dark ages. But why was it dark? It was dark primarily because the church had lost its way. The church had lost its basic foundation. Some of the doctrines that had been the foundation of the church had gone missing, like the doctrine of salvation and what it means to be righteous in Christ. How did God bring about this turnaround? Well, He used a number of people, some before me, many after me. But for some, rose, for some reason, He chose me to be the catalyst for that tipping point, which would be known as the Great Reformation. Depending on which side of the fence you sat, I was either a hero or I was a villain. I was either a general in God's army. I was either a great reformer or a terrible revolutionary. I was either someone that stood up for the truth or I was tearing down the norms and the church of the day. I never set out to be a hero or a villain. 
All I was doing was simply pursuing a passion and a love for God that needed to be satisfied. You see, I loved God. I loved His church. Not the building, not, not the structure, but I loved the essence of what it represented. The very people, the true believers that were seeking an understanding of what it would really mean to be justified, to be set apart, to receive God's free gift of grace through faith. I saw myself as a reformer, not as a revolutionary. I was hoping to bring about change from within the church, which I loved so dearly. Not to be something and someone that would tear it down. I was hoping to see the church get back to its original apostolic roots, that which it had been built on when Jesus ascended into heaven. So I was born in 1483 in a little town called Eisleben in Saxony, Germany. My father's name was Hans, and he was a blue-collar worker. He worked with his hands. He wasn't afraid of a hard day's work. But he was smart, too, and he was entrepreneurial. And it wasn't long before he had built up ownership in a series of copper mines and copper smelters. And that changed our family's fortunes significantly. My mother, Marguerite, was hardworking and diligent. And whilst Dad was bringing in the family fortunes, she took control of the household. And believe me, she ruled that household with discipline. She instilled biblical and godly principles and morals inside of me that would carry me through my entire life. As a student, I excelled. From the age of seven, my parents made sure that I learned Latin. Dad had big plans for me. Yes, he had broken through the blue-collar status, and he was now an owner and an entrepreneur. Mom was from a middle-class family, but that wasn't enough. Dad had bigger plans. To me, I was going to be a lawyer. I was going to move the family from blue-collar middle-class status into proper white-collar elite. Man, Martin was going to be our ticket to the big life. Martin was going to set us apart. Martin was going to be the guy, the son that took us and established us. With the wealth, with the fame that comes along with it. And well, I was going to look after mom and dad when it moved on and they became older. And so as a student, I excelled. And by the age of 21, I was already a graduate from Erfurt University. I'd graduated with both a bachelor and a master's degree in arts. And I began my studies in law. I was so disciplined and so effective in debating that people called me the nickname of the philosopher. I took things seriously. But deep inside, there was still this moral, tumultuous, gnawing, restlessness. God, there's got to be something more. I knew that something wasn't complete. My moral upbringing had made me aware of God, but I was searching for something deeper. Over the next 10 years, there were three crises events that defined my life, that got me to the place where I would ultimately understand who God is, what His plan for my life was, and what true salvation was all about. The first crisis happened on July in 1505. I was on my way back to university, and I got caught in an incredibly dangerous thunderstorm. 
lightning flashing all around me, thunder rolling all about. I thought I was going to die, and in that state of helplessness, I cried out to the only saint that I thought would hear me, Saint Anne, who was quite key in our family because she was the saint of minors. And I cried out, and I made a rash commitment. I said, Saint Anne, if you save me, I will commit my life to that of a monk. I will join a monastery. God saved my life, and I realized that my commitment needed to be followed through. And so I picked the monastery, the order that was the most stringent of all of them. If I was going to do this, I was going to do it properly. And so I decided to enter the Augustinian monastery, which was named after St. Augustine, because they were the most disciplined, and they were the ones that took life most seriously. Dad was absolutely furious. Martin, what were you thinking? We had plans. We had, you were on your way. You were going to become the greatest lawyer in Germany. You were going to become a judge. You were going to set us apart. This was our ticket to the high life, Martin. What were you thinking? And as frustrated as he was, and I really didn't want to disappoint him, in my heart I thought, God, maybe this is the key to really understanding who you are and finding peace in my heart that I've been searching for my whole life. I realized, and I said to myself, if anybody's going to get to heaven through being a monk, I was going to be the best monk that there could be. I was going to throw my life into this thing, and I would do it in such a way that I would be the monk, above all monks, to make it into heaven. I threw myself into the daily tasks. I scrubbed floors. I did prayer. I just threw my life into every single thing that was required of me. But you know what, folks? No matter how hard I tried, it never satisfied that longing in my soul. Each of us would go to confession each and every day. My fellow monks would go, and within five minutes, they'd be in and out. I would go, and I'd spend one sometimes two, very often three hours in confession. My confessors would pull their hair out in exasperation, saying, Martin, stop bringing us these minor infractions. Give us something that's worth forgiving. And I would go back to my room, remember something I'd forgotten to confess, and rush back. Because I was petrified that I would die having not confessed some aspect of sin. They tried so hard to get me to see reason, but there was a problem. My legal training, my legal mind was geared in such a way that I knew that if the Word of God said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. I knew that I was, it was impossible for me to do that for one hour. Never mind, live it consistently, my life. And as a lawyer, I understood the legal ramifications of breaking just even one single aspect of the law. And that guilt weighed me down, and I realized that I was not worthy, that I was not righteous, that I did not experience and could not stand up before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. I was like a madman driven by a passion to experience this forgiveness that I was reading about but could not 
could not see. My professor said, Martin, chill. Come on, Martin, be realistic. At one point, my professor said to me, Martin, do you love God? Love God? Love God? Sometimes I hate God because He expects these things of me that I'm just unable to do. That was a low point in my relationship with some of my mentors. But the crisis continued. I pressed on, and it came to the point in time when I was going to be ordained as a priest, and I was going to do my very first Mass. Dad and I patched up our differences, and now he was, still, now he was proud of not his son the lawyer, but of his son the priest. And so when it came to that day, that special day when I would do my first Mass, he brought in all his friends and all his colleagues and all his partners, and he laid them all, and he got them all seats on the front row. And he was going to show off his son, the priest. And I was in top form. I was going through the liturgy, and I had rehearsed it all, and I knew it all so well. Until I go to the place where I was holding the bread and the wine. And I was about to pray the prayer which made that bread the very body of Christ. And that wine the very blood of Christ. And I could not do it. My lips tremored. I, I trembled. It wasn't like I'd forgotten the words. I knew those words better than anybody else. But it dawned on me that me, a sinful man, had no right to be handling the body and the blood of Christ. And I was almost expecting him to strike me down right there in that very moment. Dad was furious. Here he was, his son, his son, letting him down again in this monumental way. What a disappointment I felt and must have been to him. The second crisis in my life happened when I took a pilgrimage to Rome. Every good Catholic took a pilgrimage at some point in their lives and the monastery chose two brothers each year to take that pilgrimage. And off we went. This was going to be it. God, this, the holy city, this was the place where I would meet you. This is the place that I would get that revelation and get that sense of peace. That righteousness that you promise in your word. I was disgusted by what I saw in Rome. I came back even more disillusioned than when I'd left. Here were the priests rushing through mass and collecting the tithes and offerings as fast as they could, rushing people in and rushing them out. Here were priests steeped in debauchery, with living lives with prostitutes, engaged in all sorts of activities that were just horrendous to even contemplate. In desperation, I visited the Lateran church. This church had the very steps in it. That the crusaders had brought from Jerusalem. These were the steps in which Jesus had walked up and down before Pontius Pilate. This was it. Praying on these steps, I would get the revelation. I would feel the righteousness. I would find salvation. And I would have peace. 
after reaching the top of the steps, I said aloud to no one in particular, who knows if this is true. The doubt in my heart that pierced my soul was not relieved until the third and final crisis five years later. I got back to Erfurt, but I didn't spend long there because Frederick the Wise, the ruler of Saxony, had plans. He wanted to turn this little town called Wittenberg into his new capital. He was building a huge and a significant university, and he was calling on academics from all over Germany to come and be part of the small university town. I had no idea at the time, but Frederick the Wise was going to be very instrumental in the Reformation and very instrumental in protecting me at a time when my life would be in significant and severe danger. Frederick had been put forward as the new emperor of Rome. But with his wisdom and his relationships, he in fact went out in support of Charles V, gaining significant political and relational credit. And so when I was commissioned to go as an Augustinian to Wittenberg, off I went. And it was at Wittenberg where I learnt the, the importance of what we now call sensus literalis, the literal sense of the word. And the literal sense of the word is simply this, that you learn and you interpret Scripture in the way that it was intended and the way it was originally written. So when you read poetry like Psalms, you interpret with the rules of poetry. When you read history like Kings and Chronicles, you interpret it with the rules of history. When you read prophecy like the book of Revelation, you interpret it with the rules of prophetic revelation. And so God started imparting upon me sensus literalis, the importance of reading the Word of God, the literal sense of the Word of God. And so I was commissioned to do a study on the book of Romans. And as I was studying the book of Romans, I got to Romans chapter 1, verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes first to the Jew and then to the Gentile for in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed a righteousness that is by faith from first to last just that is just as it is written the righteous will live by faith here was this concept in verse 17 that had terrified me my entire life. This was the thing that I've been seeking resolution on ever since I could remember. Here I was face to face with it once again. And I said, God, how? There was this barrier. There was God on the one side and me on the other side, a big chasm between us. And there was nothing that would be able to get me in place. There was nothing that could connect us. No matter how hard I tried, no matter how many of the sacraments of the church I initiated, no matter how much penance I applied. And as I was studying this, the Holy Spirit started speaking to me. You see, in Latin, that word live by, that word justification means to be made righteous. And that's why the church said, we will make you righteous. 
We will turn you into somebody that is as righteous as Christ as you do the following things, as you go through the following processes. And so as much as we tried, and I tried, and I tried, I knew that I was not righteous. But when I went back to the original Greek, something happened. I realized that this word justification was not to make righteous, but to regard as righteous, to count as righteous, to declare as righteous. Not something that I work at, not something that I earn, not something that I kind of persevere in, but something that I simply receive, something that is imputed upon me. You see, it's not my righteousness. It's an alien righteousness that belongs to Him and Him alone. Something significant happened. As I realized that it was not about me, not about my righteousness, not about something I could do, but it's only something I could walk in and receive, I became born again. Those scales lifted off my eyes, lifted off my heart. There was such joy unspeakable, I could not contain it. And once I saw it in Romans, I saw it on every single page in God's Word. I was so excited. I just thought to myself, this revelation is going to cause a breakthrough in the church. Every priest, every believer, every cardinal, the Pope himself needs to hear this. And they are going to be as passionate and as excited as I am to get this revelation. Unfortunately, that wasn't what happened. Back in Rome, the Pope wanted to build St. Peter's Cathedral. And in order to do that, he went out and he started selling indulgences. And a monk called Tetzel went out to sell these indulgences. Now you've got to understand, Tetzel was very charismatic. He would walk into towns with pomp and with ceremony, create a great expectation. He would then preach a word, a challenging word. And in that word he would say, can you hear the cries of your loved ones stuck in purgatory? trapped in purgatory, doing their time in purgatory, trying to work through those blemishes in their lives. But if you purchase an indulgence, their time will be cut short. Every time a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. And people were coming forward, hundreds and thousands of selling what they had to bring money into the coffers of Rome so that they could buy salvation for their loved ones. This angered me so greatly that I knew I had to do something. And so one night I wrote up 95 statements, 95 theses against this despicable sale of indulgences. I wrote it in Latin because I wanted this to be an academic debate. I wanted us as academics to discuss this, to debate this, to understand what God's Word really says about this despicable practice. Because I wanted us to discuss this and transform from the inside out. But two things happened. One, there was no debate. And two, my students got hold of these theses, translated them into German, and with the help of Gutenberg's new printing press, got it out on social media across the whole country. Within two weeks, the whole nation was talking about these despicable 
sale of indulgences. Rome reacted. The Pope was fuming. They were mad, and I was called up in front of a number of orders to try and give an account for what I'd done. I embraced this because I thought this was the opportunity for us to debate this and to understand what God's Word really says about salvation, the revelation that the church has been missing and is needing to kind of have at the center of its doctrines. But none of these turned out to be debates at all. I was told to repent, I was told to recant, and I was told to return. And when I wouldn't do it, they cleverly manipulated it to make it look like I was a heretic just like John Huss had been 100 years before. Who was Huss? Huss was a Czech from the city of Prague. 100 years before, in 1415, after publishing a set of works declaring that the Scripture alone contained the inspired Word of God, he was burnt at the stake because he could not and would not recant. As he was burning, he prophesied these words. Hus, direct translation is goose. And he said, you may burn or you may cook this goose. But there will come after me a swan that you will not be able to silence. Was I the swan that Hus had prophesied over? That he had foretold 100 years before? The Pope reacted. He issued a papal bull declaring me a heretic. Declaring me an outlaw. People could take me apart, kill me, burn me at the stake. It would all be fair game. Charles, the emperor, in exasperation, decided to call an imperial diet in the city of Worms. And with Frederick's help, I was promised safe conduct. I got to this diet thinking this would be the opportunity, my day in court. This would be the opportunity for me to present before state and the church God's plan, God's purpose for salvation. But instead, it was simply repent, recant, and return. When I could not, I said this. Unless I'm convinced by sacred scripture or evident reason, I cannot recant. For my conscience is held captive by the word of God. And to act against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. The hall exploded with outrage. All promises of safe conduct were forgotten. And if it wasn't, hadn't been for the smart intervention of some of my friends who staged a fake kidnapping, that could have been the end of me right there and then. They rushed me off to the safety of Wartburg Castle, where over the next 10 months, I translated the New Testament into German. In 1525, I met the most beautiful woman in the world, Catherine von Bora, and we got married. We made up for lost time, and we were blessed with six children. <laughs> Despite being declared an outlaw by the emperor, I survived, continued to minister, and continued to preach for the further 25 years, and died of natural causes at the ripe old age of 62. The Reformation not only brought about a significant restoration of truth inside the church, but also impacted all of society 
and was instrumental in what kicked off a period of productivity and progress through all of Europe. It was clear to me. It was clear to me from Scripture that the maid who sweeps her kitchen is doing the will of God just as much as the monk who prays. Not because she does so by singing a Christian hymn as she sweeps, but because God loves clean floors. That the Christian shoemaker does his Christian duty not by putting little crosses on his shoes, but by making good shoes because God loves good craftsmanship. I saw from Scripture that all work is worship. And when we do it unto the King, we feel His pleasure upon our lives. The monk that shook the world, I don't know, more like the attorney who gave up on the law. But looking back, I know and I see three things that were key to achieving what God wanted me to achieve. First, the legal training was a critical part of that process. Without that legal training and that legal understanding, I would not have taken the law as seriously as I did and would not have been exasperated by my failure to meet its criteria. Secondly, the struggles that I faced should not be a surprise because when you're standing up for something real, you should expect opposition. And the struggles in the monastery and the struggles in Rome confirmed the struggle in my heart. And thirdly, that by persevering and standing up and seeking God in all aspects ultimately led to that revelation where the Holy Spirit was ready to reveal to me the truth about what salvation was all about. I lived a full life. I found his purpose in the center of that incredible resistance, but was able to push through because I did what he designed me to do. What is he designed for you? What is that unique longing in your soul that he has placed in you and in you alone? What are those gifts, those skills, those talents, those abilities, those studies that you're flourishing in or that are just hovering slightly below the surface, the surface that he's saying push through in faith because I want to use those to do great things. I changed the world not by trying to be someone great, but what I did change the world simply because I wouldn't give up and I wouldn't give in. And I've got a good feeling that neither will you. Let's pray together. Hallelujah, Lord Jesus. Hallelujah, Father. Lord, when we reflect on great men through the ages, like Martin Luther, Lord, we are challenged in our hearts. And if you're here today, and maybe for the first time you've understood salvation in a way that you've never seen it before, maybe for the first time you've kind of said, I've been working at this, making this, trying to, trying to see a way to kind of earn, make myself righteous. And right now he's saying, I want to declare you righteous. If that's you this morning and you're saying, God, I want that life and I want that revelation. Would you just quickly raise your hand so I can see if I'm going to be praying for anybody in that area. Thank you. I see those hands. I see that hand. I see that hand there too. I see that hand. 
And so what I'd like us to do today, together, all of us, I'd like us to pray. Thank you. I see those hands all over the auditorium. I see that. Thank you. Thank you. Could I ask you a favor? If you raised your hand, would you just quickly step out of your seat and come here so I can pray with you? Could you do that? Could you guys come forward, please? Come on through. Amen. Let's give them a hand. Church, let's just celebrate this amazing time, this amazing moment with these amazing people, all right? This is the most significant moment of your life, all right? Because just like Martin Luther, this is the moment where you go, Lord, I realize something for the first time. And so I'm going to lead you in a short prayer, and I'm going to ask you to pray it. I'm going to ask us all to pray it together. And as we do it, we're going to trust God for a miracle in your lives today, amen? Dear Lord Jesus, I come to you this morning and say, Father, I cannot do this. I can only trust in you. I receive your life. I receive your love. In Jesus' name, amen, amen, amen. God bless you guys, man. Congratulations.